Hello, welcome to the hot seat. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Dr. Bill Kassain, a reader in the government department, to talk about the situation in Turkey. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. So, first of all, can you give us a brief introduction to the situation in Turkey at the moment? Well, there's been almost a week of a sit-in protest at the centre of Istanbul and, and many other urban centres in Turkey, largely triggered by protests over a decision to kind of redesign urban space in the centre of Istanbul, a park being converted into a shopping mall. But as the police reaction kind of kicked in and people were dealt with in a heavy-handed way, tear gas arrests, 900 people arrests, it's kind of snowballed into a, a kind of protest against the style of the government AKP party, which has been in power since 2002. So one of the things about it, which is quite unique, I think, is it's very difficult when you look at the people who turn up at these protests to say they fall under one kind of sociological or ideological category. What they have in common is, is dissatisfaction with the way the country is going, the way it's governed, the personality of the prime minister. And if you look back historically in this kind of last 20 years, it's really unprecedented in a way because... Um, the first kind of instance that ever came out, I mean, Turkey doesn't have a very strong protest culture. The first example of this would be the wake of the 1999 Sea of Marmara earthquake, where there was mass dissatisfaction with the response of the state to how the disaster was dealt with. And then since then, in terms of this particular tactic of, of protesting in public spaces and bringing on confrontation with the police, the Kurds, of course, the Kurdish movement in Turkey have been doing this for the last 10 or 15 years. And this has obviously been a far more violent kind of experience. This is something where the traditional cleavages in Turkish society between the secular camp, between the religious camp, between the Kurds and the Turks, don't really explain everything. It seems to be much more educated people, much more middle class, much more Europeanized. Uh, a lot of young people, a lot of students, a lot of left-wing or environmental organisations. And they can't be marginalised in the way that the Kurds were in the past because the main Kurdish conflict was taking place very far from the urban centres of, of Turkey and very far from the, the TV channels. So it really is something quite unprecedented because the that first kind of dissatisfaction over the handling of the earthquakes wasn't really directed at a, a style of government or an individual party or the way in which that party was coming to dominate the country. So this is unprecedented and it looks as if they're determined to, to fight on and that at the moment there doesn't seem to be very much sign of, of the two finding a compromise. So how legitimate are the concerns about uh, whether Erdogan is a dictator, his control over things like the, the media and the Penguin documentary being the, uh, the prime example, and is there an influence from the Arab Spring in there? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's quite the same as the Arab Spring protests because this is not a an unpopular government. It has mass support. B, it's delivered um, economically, and three, it's won three democratic elections on the trot. So, how legitimate are the concerns? The question really is, um, firstly whether or not there is a long-term agenda to slowly Islamicize Turkey is beside the point. In these specific instances, for example, the ban on alcohol after 10 o'clock, 
perception is what matters and this is a cumulative thing because this government when it first came to power in 2002 for three or four years it pursued a kind of democratization program and it's kind of stepped away from that and it's become more heavy-handed as time went on so the perception is there now in terms of how legitimate it is in a political culture to to argue that the standard of democracy in the country is not high enough in terms of people's expectations. This is, of course, is a legitimate part of any kind of debate. So it is legitimate, but I think the term dictator, there is a dictatorial style and there is a, a style that benefits from um, defining things and political issues in highly polarised ways. And there is also, I suppose, in the last six to nine months, a general appreciation that the current process of writing a constitution is going to be redirected so that a full presidential system emerges in which Erdogan, who cannot continue more than his third term as prime minister, then becomes president. Now, when you consider his reaction to these particular protests, which is to say, oh, this is a plot of the old guard in Turkey, or all these young people, are, a lot of them are kind of terrorists, he's playing on the things that have succeeded in the past. So it's, it's his style of government. So how would that style of government work out if actually he was uh, a fully empowered president? So it's really in the long run, I mean, there's a lot of confrontation on the way. And really the question is, you know, can Erdogan really keep going with this style of government in such society when it's like someone said during the week, the fear factor, the fear threshold has been overcome by these young people. They're willing to go out. They're willing to take on the police. They're willing to be arrested. They're willing to go to prison. They're willing to go in front of courts that in the last seven or eight years has really delivered really heavy-handed sentences against people involved in the Kurdish movement, students, etc., etc. So, so, you know, it's really the, the situation has escalated and Erdogan's instinctive reaction is always to escalate it further because that's the way he's done well electorally. But I wonder, you know, he's also not a fool and he's also, his government has often done good things as well. Uh, I think it could escalate and then they'll find a way of de-escalating it. So it, it's really, you know, in terms of how legitimate, I mean, the question of legitimacy doesn't really apply in the same way to a style of behaviour or a leadership style because all styles are legitimate if they're within the, the rules of the game. But I think the, the contradiction is that the, this economic transformation that the, the governing party is, is, is popular for is also making for a society where people are better travelled, better educated, they have higher expectations, they're more self-assertive. And this is in a society that until recently was one of the most state-dominated societies that we can think of. Right? So in the long run, whether this style of politics is sustainable, I, I don't know. But, I mean, politicians, I mean, if you've been in power for three terms, you just want the fourth term and the fifth term. You don't necessarily think about the next 50 years. In terms of the corruption of politics, what are the, the geopolitical implications? It's an important strategic country. Uh, the EU membership is a large border with Syria. Is the influence of the UK, US, EU? Um, so how does all of that look at the moment? I would say kind of three things. I think in the first case, this geopolitics aspect with Syria, with Iran, with the Kurdish kind of potential state in northern Iraq, uh, 
with the Kurdish issue within Turkey, these are all high priority issues for all the external actors involved. And until now, particularly with the United States, their approach to Erdogan and his government has always been conditioned by the fact that they need a strong Turkey and a cooperative Turkey in the Middle East. For the European Union, they have to ask themselves the question of whether they're going to do like the Americans did, prioritize A, the foreign policy questions, B, the economic transformation, and relegate the issue of democracy to the third position. But the problem is that A, on an ethical grounds, the European Union, it faced a problem back in 2002, which is, if you want to move Turkey forward in your direction, who do you deal with? the old military secular camp or this very dynamic, seemingly democratic AKP project. And they decided that to back the AKP and for the first three years there was this series of reforms that were intended to move Turkey closer to the EU. But the EU could be criticised, A, for simply backing the winner and not realising that at a certain point the winner turned out to be a bit more of a winner than they expected them to be. And B, you know, just turning a blind eye to things that are in blatant contradiction with European democratic standards. And the problem is that the way all those people in the square articulate their political values is very consistent with a whole range of things, pluralism, consensus, reconciliation, diversity, multicultural, respect for rights and so forth, that Europeans will regard as part of the European package. And the party politics in Turkey is such that the parties are incredibly polarised, they're dominated by personalities, and the historical divisions between them are vented all the time. So what's the European Union going to do if, if it can continue to do what it's done, which is turn a blind eye to everything that's going on, or misunderstand what's going on, or it can say, well, actually, this type of dynamic is exactly the type of dynamic we would like to happen. And rather than engaging in this diplomatic bargaining process with the political elite, which on both sides is a bit insincere and fruitless at this stage, the European Union could decide, actually, that if this question, to answer your first question, about the legitimacy of insisting on higher democratic standards in this country, because Turkey's had elections since 1950, it's had multi-party politics, but other things like a genuinely free press, freedom of expression, freedom of organisation, minority rights, these have not been delivered upon, despite the fact that since 2002 there's been a discourse about all of them in the air, how that discourse becomes part of a genuinely governmental process. That's the big problem. So for the European Union, they might say, well, let's forget about the governmental process. Let's not just be elites dealing with elites, and let's, let's accept that this is actually what needs to happen. And I think ultimately, you know, in terms of the external as aspects to this, if people on the ground in Turkey want to reverse the direction the country is going, they're going to have to stand up and protest. But on the other hand, the most powerful weapon they have is the media, because it's extremely embarrassing, both for Erdogan and for all these people who've supported him in the West, to see someone who they've used as the kind of democratic ambassador of the Muslim world, going around Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt and so forth, called a dictator by his own people. Right? It's extremely embarrassing. So the media is a major factor in this. And without the media, and by the media I don't mean the established media in Turkey, which is highly constrained for, for various reasons, but social media, 
this is what has allowed it to take off the way it is. So I think, you know, this, this, the, 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 the external powers, you know, the Americans, I mean, I think they are more constrained by the foreign policy issues. I think a lot of them are, are highly sympathetic to some of the things that Erdogan has done. And don't forget, since, since early this spring, they've also launched a peace process with the Kurdish insurgency in Turkey, and their soldiers are by and large retreating across the border in northern Iraq. So this is a highly important issue as well. It's extremely complex, um, but I think for the EU, just to carry on the way they've done, engaging in this facade of, of, of diplomacy where they're not going to deliver or offer EU membership, the Turks know it. I mean, if ultimately you want Turkey to be democratised to European standards, you have to, to come up with a different strategy. In terms of the uh, American influence and the Syria situation, just to finish. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a, a connection with Syria, except in the sense that, once again, Erdogan has had a very combative adversor adversarial attitude to Syria. There's a lot of baggage there, because firstly, the majority in Turkey is Sunni Islam, like potentially. Um, would happen if, if, if they came to power in Syria. Secondly, as I said, part of um, Turkey was once part of Syria until the late 1930s, so there's a territorial issue there, even though it's not contested, I think, by Syria. And thirdly, Assad's father was a backer of the PKK movement and gave them training camps in the Beka Valley in Syria. And actually, Turkey had to more or less threaten war to get Abdullah Ocalan, the leader of the PKK, kicked out of Syria. So there's all sorts of things there, but I suppose in terms of these protests, it's a question that the British have to answer as well, is that, you know, faced with Syria, you know, is this partisan adversarial taking sides approach going to work? Now, in Turkey, what Erdogan has done in the foreign policy sphere has had domestic benefits in electoral terms. Um, but I suppose some of the people who are protesting would probably see a government that is trying to engage fully with the whole Middle Eastern context and sacrificing what was early on the whole pro-European accession process and so forth. So I think, you know, the Syrian thing, I can't see it being a big issue for, for the protesters, but I think for the outside uh, powers, the people who could twist Erdogan's arm. I mean, for them, it's, it's a huge priority. And the thing that's not been discussed at all as part of these protests, because it's not an essential element of them, is this possible peace process with the Kurdish movement. Because this, of course, there are Kurds in Syria. The PKK is influential in, in northern Syria. There's the Kurdish enclave in Iraq, the autonomous region in Iraq. And then the, 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 the PKK in Turkey is moving out of Turkey. Now, what seems to be the case is some kind of deal has been done, but it hasn't been made transparent. And there's two problems with that. One is there's this suspicion that in return for Kurdish support for a presidency, which will make Erdogan more dominant, Erdogan will deliver some Kurdish demands as part of the constitution-making process. And this will exclude others who won't accept either of these things. So the Kurdish movement in Turkey, which is 
got a democratic dimension, but it's also got a purely nationalist dimension, might have to decide, are our sectional interests more important than our, 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 our support for democratization more generally? And I think for the Americans, I, I mean, I, I just can't see, I mean, this is a Cold War alliance, and the Cold War alliance, paradoxically, has become even more important after the Cold War in the, in the Middle East. Are they really going to, you know, with Syria and Iran and Iraq, can they really antagonize Turkey? And then again, it's, it's, again, it's a question of, of, of how the population view um, Erdogan legitimacy. Is electoral legitimacy enough? It was the same question here with Thatcher. She won elections on the basis of a plurality of the vote, stood on a lot of people's toes, was very adversarial, everyone knew which side, but there was a debate about legitimacy too, and, and, and it's domestically that's where that debate must take place, and I think as regards the Americans, I can't really see them uh, changing position. Okay, all right, thanks very much, good luck, Thank you.